Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, my guest this morning is Lachlan Walter, whose debut novel, The Rain Never Came, was recently published by Odyssey Books. Welcome to 3CR's Published or Not, Lachlan Walter. Thank you, Ewan. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on having your first novel published. I'd like to start with your background. I see in the author's notes you've completed a PhD in Australian post-apocalyptic fiction and national identity. Can you tell me about where and when you did your PhD and how The Rain Never Came fitted with your studies? I did my PhD from 2011 through to 2015 at La Trobe University. Right. It was an actual creative writing PhD. Oh, so the novel came. The novel out came of the as part yeah. was an actual part of the PhD itself. Uh, Along and then, with the exegesis. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, the exegesis wasn't so much an analysis of my own work, but other Australian work that fits into the same mould that I'm writing in. So looking at how Australian writers use post-apocalyptic fiction to explore different facets of this idea of being Australian. A national identity. A national yeah. identity, yeah. exactly right. And this being a quite contentious idea, you know, what makes us Australian. Sure. Um, it seems that through my studies I found that post-apocalyptic settings and the idea of wastelands, Australian, you know, degraded Australian environments and so on, acted as kind of a framework that allowed people to deconstruct our ideas of national identity and sort of re-examine them. So, Okay. Wastelands. Now, so tell us about the setting for your novel that the rain never came in a not-too-distant future. Um, the setting is effectively an extension of the drought-stricken land that we have at the moment and the droughts that we have had in the, in the past. It actually evolved because I was living in central Victoria during the Millennium Drought. Right. So that, that's that 10-year drought where yeah. we all remember it. Um, I lived in this little tiny country town. The actual setting of the rain never t- never came. Oh, I see. And it was one of the weirdest places I've ever been in my life. Well, having said that, it did ring very true, the setting. But uh, so, that's no. why it's because it's based on experience. Yep, thanks. And um, it's coincidentally, it's also my hometown. Oh, so yeah. I had <laughs> a lot of connections to the place and uh, I've spent a lot lots of, past of to draw That's on. right, yeah. yeah. Um, hence, I could... Hopefully, people find that it's evoked really well um, and that it seems like a convincing environment. Um, But more than anything, it was the people in this place during the drought that inspired the idea for what if this kept going? What if, instead of being 10 years, the drought lasted for 30 or 40? And the way of life that we are actually accustomed to was no longer was no longer feasible or no longer viable. Oh, it's a very good what-if, a very good premise. Uh, yeah, a lot of people will be uh, thinking that. Well, the desal plant was put there for a reason. That, that's exactly right. And that's when we were having these kind of, you know, these discussions were going on because people weren't seeing such an end to it. Yeah. Um, but the, the quality of the people and the way their attitudes to the town itself and to their environment, the way they changed during the drought was what actually really inspired this. Okay. Um, I remember seeing things like during one brief rain during a February, yeah. people running into the streets. 
Celebrating. Just celebrating, standing yeah. there, arms out, yeah. you know, drenched in the rain because yeah. they hadn't seen it for With their mouths months. open. And their mouths, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. People, you know, collecting rainwater with the idea of selling it as a souvenir. <laughs> so, you know, Central Victorian <laughs> rain in February. <laughs> Bottling it. Yep. Uh, um, that's, that's how rare it became. That was how rare. That's exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. It was so, what, so what rare. year was that exactly? The end of the... That was... That particular downfall. That time was... To 2007, 2008. Okay. Um, so it was right at the tail end of it. Yeah. So it was the most extreme yeah. kind of conditions there. There are, you know, there's a there's a massive reservoir there that you could literally walk through. Um, and it was dry. And it was just a, yeah. that, that, that's right. Um, and we had people walking off land. You know, farmers kind of giving up their farms. A very old-fashioned Australian circumstances. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, there we were in the 21st century. Yeah. Unable to continue, you know, unable to cope in the way that we'd been used to coping. So, We're talking about drawing that on that history, though, uh, n the whole of Australia isn't a parched landscape. You've used the notion of, uh, I think it's the Brisbane line in a, a different way as it was used in World War Two. Yeah. How have you used that in your novel? Um, effectively, as a demarcation point between the dry Australia and tropical Australia, yeah. where there's actually still enough water to... So above the Brisbane line, it's, yeah, it's okay. Above the Brisbane no. line, it's okay. Below is not so good, which yeah. is kind of... Yeah. It's a it's reverse. A, it, it, yeah. it is, because we're going to defend Australia apparently from the Brisbane line. Yeah. And, no. But uh, in this case, it's better to be above the Brisbane line. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that was a matter of kind of you know, necessity. I needed yeah. somewhere for people to go. Yeah. And obviously aware of the fact that Australia isn't completely dry and yeah. drought stricken i had to do some you know kind of creative thinking and creative yeah. licensing to find a place for people to actually be and live yeah. um but the the idea of the brisbane line is such such a part of our world war ii history yeah. and it's sort of ingrained in australian culture in that way and i wanted the intention was always for the rain never came to be very australian yeah um sometimes maybe a little cheesily so yeah. which is okay, um, yeah. that's sort of deliberate, but I wanted it to evoke certain of these ideas from our past. Okay. Um, so they just, you know, they came to a confluence and the Brisbane line kind of worked. Well, that's a good point to start talking about the main character, Bill Cook. He's the first person narrator in the story, but he's not the real man of action. Who is the real man of action and what's the connection between yep. Bill and Tobe? Yeah, Tobe. So, uh, Tobe Darling, sorry, I've just I've just had a blank <laughs> on his blank, yeah. his name. Um, he's Tobe is the man of action in the story. Exactly, he is the he's the driver of the narrative. He is the man that brings Bill along and forces Bill to go on these adventures. Um, and Bill and Tobe are written specifically as classical Australian mates. Yep. Um, they've grown up in this town together. They met at a footy match. They met at a footy match, you know, when Tobes is kind of scavenger, Bill's a homebody, mm. but they have this inseparable kind of bond forged by their own history and the horrible circumstances of the drought yep. that have created something between them that neither of them can let go of. And there's a history that we don't quite know about at the start. That's right. That gradually That's right. And without yeah. giving away spoilers, yeah, that sure. sort of, their history is kind of the crux of the story. Um, and who are the bad guys? Who are the, the creeps the creeps. The story? Yep. Um, so the creeps are effectively a paramilitary government organisation. Uh, creep being an, an extended acronym for the compulsory relocation police. Yeah. 
And they are a combination army, policemen, evacuation force, whose job it is to evacuate the small towns of drought-stricken Victoria. But they're not a benign force, are they, in terms of evacuation? No. They are... um, they're awful people, basically. Uh, without, without again giving out away too much of the story, they're a heavy-handed and heavily armed and heavily armed example of the kind of fascisty yeah. forces that you know want don't want people to continue their lives here. Yeah. Um, in the imagined backstory that all writers have to their stories, they did start as a benign force, and this idea of Australian towns being evacuated because of the drought and making them untenable for life was originally envisioned as a benign thing to do. It's saving people from situations they're never in. But, but then there are holdouts, as you call that's them. That's right. People who don't want to move yep. and the creeps are suddenly not so... Uh, exactly, yep. And the story kind of, although it's never specified, it's sort of 20 years or so after this the beginnings of these forced evacuations. So like any situation where you have um you have people in power impacting on people with no power the longer it goes on the more authoritarian the people in power can become the more stubborn and kind of resistance defined become the holdouts Mm. and hence the kind of title holdouts um they're not people that are willing this is such an you know this has been going on for such a long time the people left I will do anything not to leave. Right. They've seen the results and they've lived through it. So, And I like the way, actually, you paint the bad guys in more than one dimension. They're not just one-dimensional bad guys. You have, um, without, again, giving away spoilers, but uh, there are some interesting dynamics between uh, one of the leaders and uh, some of the rank and file in there, which uh, were actually quite funny at times as well in the midst of them being the bad guys. Now, also in the background, across this parched landscape, landscape you've got first country folk which i take to be indigenous australians and they're moving uh, in caravans at times what where are they going to or from in these caravans um the idea with the first country is that um because land rights have always been such an issue sure. in australia and in australian in australian culture it struck me that if this situation were to be and people were evacuating the land and kind of abandoning it. Um, the creeps and their higher-ups, because they, in some, in, in, there's an imagined level of authority on top of the creeps, governmental, you know, whatever we would call it, that kind of defines this. They, the situation of evacuated towns and uh, abandoned land would be, in my imagining, the only way certain governmental kind of philosophies would give Indigenous people back their land. Right, because There's it was a, essentially a wasteland. Yeah, so we've ruined it. They weren't going to Here you go, it. you can have it yeah. back. Yeah. Which mm. is typical of the kind of slap in the face that a lot of our yeah. governments do. Um, and I wanted First Country... Because you never specifically meet a First Country character. Yeah. They live an almost separate existence to everyone else because they don't get moved on. Mm. They're allowed allowed with the rabbit ears which i just realized i'm on radio so you can't see (laughs) um but they're they're the only people who aren't forcibly evicted whenever they're they're there now it's now their land again but only because we've ruined it Mm. which 
yeah, I'm not sure if it's the most appropriate kind of way of doing it, but I, yeah, it's sort of... I painted the post-apocalyptic vision of the future well. The rain never came. Lachlan Walter I'm talking with. Um, and in terms of research, what sort of research, since it was part of a PhD creative thesis, what sort of research was involved in uh, putting the novel together? Mostly real-life research. So going back to the towns okay. that are involved... Um, walking around experiencing what they felt like in the heat in the extreme heat and in the extreme dry um, that typical hands-on kind of writerly research but then there was also a lot of for the book itself uh, research in Australian history so kind of Summer Major Mitchell's journals oh, and his okay. descriptions of how he, when he progressed when he first came across a lot of these of yep, that's right yeah. um, and the ways that people like that you know these early settlers the way, the specific ways they used materials they found to cope, how they found food, how they found water, the materials that they had to actually survive. Yeah. The PhD itself was a completely different story. That's jargonistic, okay. critical stuff that was interesting and often useless. <laughs> You've given us a good picture of The Rain Never Came, published by Odyssey Books, Lachlan Walter. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on 3CR's Published or Not, Lachlan. Thank, thank you very much for having me, Ewan. You're I appreciate welcome. it. Well, Ewan, I also have a debut novelist. I also have a sort of apocalyptic setting. Notions of the Undead. It's and a theme of, for the it's, it's a theme, for the, indeed it is. Notions of the undead, of clairvoyance and an all-consuming mist are generally attributed to the unrealistic world of fictional horror. Lois Murphy, in her novel Soon, makes this horror actual and real, but perhaps not in the sense one attributes to the genre. So, Lois, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, let's begin with this mist. We only just made it. The accelerator indifferent to the weight of our fear. The mist had already risen enough to surround the vehicles. At home, I did not even stop to lock the Land Cruiser. Just bellowed at the stranger to move and yanked Gina out behind me. We'd run for the house as the mist around us started to transform itself into figures. Howling faces and reaching arms. Elongated, grasping fingers snatching at us gleeful. Thankfully, it was still hazy enough to evade. We wrenched ourselves through it and I slammed the door as it streamed after us up the porch steps, screeching with delight at this unexpected opportunity. As I flicked the locks, it was pressed against the windows, a chilling kaleidoscope of bones and teeth against the glass. Oh goodness, I do have bad dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but this mist is, well, there's that surface layer of what we come to expect with the genre, but this mist works on a whole other level though, doesn't it? The mist is largely allegorical and it stands for life basically it's how tenuous our existences are and how quickly things can change and how quickly we can lose everything well we'll explore how that is possible because we're in this fictional uh town of nebula an interesting name yes <laughs> what, what how did you come up with that name oh it's based on nebulous Yes, mm. indeed. Now, all reference to nebula had been quietly removed from road signs. By the eastern highway stood a denuded pole, testament to a town that ceased to exist. And we actually have a town like that in Australia. Yeah, well, the book was inspired by Wittenoom in WA, um, the asbestos town. So, And I, just, I was just gripped by the story of making a town with a terrible problem disappear. 
it's instead of actually solving it to saying, oh, everyone out, you know, yeah. we'll take down the signs, we'll take it off the map. And that, you know, that town has been obliterated. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's still people living there. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, I'm not 100% sure about that, but there were people living there still up until recently. Because how do you leave your home? How do you leave... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that investment in mm. your life. But it's when some bureaucracy makes a decision and that's it. Or, you know, anything can change. Um, war, we've got such a refugee problem. Um, you know, it is so easy to lose everything. But in many ways, some of the elements of this allegorical mist are much closer to home. But let's look at some of the people in this town. Our narrator is Pete, we have Millie, we have Lee, we have Stick. And there are those that have recently left, like Liz and Rolf, who committed suicide. The town is dying. Um, and these people shut their doors and windows each night against the mist. Now, into this world comes this clairvoyant Alex. And just when you think, well, you know, this is bordering on the, the conventional, Alex has a very simple explanation of her clairvoyance. Oh, it's basically an ability to relate to people and to connect. Um, How important is that? Oh, vital. Vital. I mean, I find it... I mean, I'm not saying I'm clairvoyant in any way, but sometimes you meet someone and you have an instant connection to them. Um, yeah. And it's like an understanding, you know. I think that humans do have that interaction on a, and a it's, level. And it's based on human experience, mm. or for that matter, imagination. You've also mentioned places where you can go in history and you can feel a sort of mm. presence mm. there. Yeah, I think histories stay with places, particularly turbulent histories. Or is it just our imagination? Oh, this is getting all very esoteric, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there is. it's also just being open to that sort of... Some people are very closed. Yes, but if you go into a town that is dying, you can sense it. That's mm. not necessarily clairvoyance as we'd understand it. It is just that presence and that feel mm. of the place. Mm. But Alex leaves a message with Pete, who's our narrator. What's that message? Oh, well... Basically, that his best friend, Millie, will be the cause of his death. And if he's not out of town by the next solstice, he's had it. And so we get this notion of the solstice coming in. But that leads us to the title of the novel, Soon. It's That's coming. That's the word she gives him. Soon. And so the um, coming of the solstice is then also what gives a little more impetus to the narrative of the book. So there's this plausibility in terms of this clairvoyance, this prediction almost of the disaster that's going to unfold. But you've also described the sort of clairvoyance uh, or what um, Alex can feel. It's human nature unfettered, unrestrained, and the mist is a result of our corruption. And here we get further into this notion of what allegorically this mist stands for because if you look at people's lives then we start to understand there's a scene where pete actually visits his estranged daughter uh, julie for christmas dinner tell us about that and what happens 
Oh, I had a lot of fun writing that scene, actually. Um, it was based on... I used to work in a bookshop in a very well-to-do Melbourne suburb, and that scene is based on the sort of people who would come into the bookshop. So, yeah, that was a real revenge piece. But I remember one day I was in the shop and some there'd been an awful coup, I think it was in Fiji. This is going back a long time ago. And all these people had been slaughtered. It was an absolute disaster. And I overheard a couple in the shop saying, oh, yes, well, there should be cheap fares there now. Oh. And so that that sort of inspired that scene. But also then Brad, her husband, is justifying uh, basically um, finagling with figures. Yeah, greed, um, particularly corporate greed, um, personal wealth. I mean, it's unfortunately a big part of our society. And this is the mist in many ways. In many ways, yes. Because there are also other examples of the mist. We have Lee, who's a refugee, who's made a living in Nebula, uh, market garden sort of thing, and uh, produce and supplies. What happens to Lee? Well, once she loses the co-op, which is you know a small community business in a nearby town, there's no way for an independent grower to survive. Um, you know, and you see this in all our supermarkets these days. We're becoming more and more multinational. Um, farmers have no option but to sell through major distributors if they're not big enough. Yeah, well, my, my sister and her husband are orchardists and right. the main um, supermarket chains make certain demands at a certain cost. They have lost control in many ways mm. of um, their primary produce. So again... They're being marginalised and squeezed by certain forces, human nature unfettered and unrestrained. And it works the other way too because consumers get channelled into what's available and the option for buying things that aren't produced in certain ways gets slimmer and slimmer. I mean, you go into Coles and Woolies now and everything is their own brand. Yeah. So we are limited as people... And yet we simply go into the supermarkets and accept what's happening. Mm, yep. So really, I mean, there's a message coming across here about our own lives in some way and how we need to be careful because everyone at the end of the night has to get home before dusk to lock the doors in, and if they make one little error, leave a chink uh, open or don't time things precisely, they're lost. It's, you've, it's The trepidation is there in many ways uh, and, and the fear. You bring it nicely together um, when we have Pete talking to um, one of the, the police uh, officer, Denham, who um, Pete wants some help, and Denham's face drained to an anemic shade of mist. What's happening there? Is it? Pete's asked them to, for help because oh, the yes. kids have got into yes. Nebula and he wants some help and, and Denham ignores him. Well, he's a, a symptom of our ability to ignore things. You know, it's so much easier to just pretend it's not there. Hmm. Well, I thought that reference in the description to Mist was basically making that point. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that was fascinating. You also have... Zandria, who's a Wiccan 
uh, and Alice and, and basically a group of young people and they get themselves into trouble. How so? Well, they get seduced by the idea of the mystical um, and Xandria considers herself a Wiccan and experienced with things on that level and, you know, of course not many people are really experienced with anything on that level and, um, yeah, she gets them all into trouble because she sees it as a force that she can reckon with. And in many ways, Pete's folly is in attempting to help people because it brings him into danger. Well, he doesn't really want to. He's very much a reluctant hero. Um, that's why I made, it, made him an ex-policeman. He has that inherent idea that he has to look out for people, but he'd much rather just stay at home with a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> but also, I mean, Pete went to Nebula in the first place to sort of escape yep. from responsibility. Well, he says early on he's a terrible policeman. He hated it. Yeah, so. he's honest at least. <laughs> but he's still got a core of um, niceness, um, well, humanity. He a lot of guilt mm. about his past life and uh, his past mistakes. He's got a lot to rectify. But we all do in that regard. Mm. Uh, and yet it's that human acceptance of it. What you have in the mist or the corporate entities or the bureaucracies is this lack of humanity mm. in many ways. Is that what you see happening in the world? Oh, definitely. But part of the, the mist is, and the, well, the idea behind people's reaction to it is that we always want explanations we always want to know exactly what something is and where it's come from and um, this idea of justice if you're a good person you'll get what comes to you and um, and it just doesn't work like that so how does it work oh, well you've read the book <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I don't want to give anything away but what was the impetus behind writing this in many ways and the, and the ideas behind it um, it was a mix of things. It was the story of Whitnoom, which really fascinated me. Um, it was just all the atrocities going on in places like Africa, the amazing cruelty that, and the refugee situation where people were being forced out and having to run from absolute diabolical situations. And then instead of being helped they're treated with absolute resentment and this is the worry i mean we can't do much about the the atrocities the war zones etc but, but we it's, can help people at the other end yes and it's what's happening here today yep. australia's attitude towards people in need uh corporate attitudes um and so these are very much with us and we simply accept it yeah we've lost have we lost our humanity or I think we're very close to it. I mean, that's just my personal opinion, and you know, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist, really. But um, and that's a more frightening apocalyptic vision in many ways mm. than they, the horror genre with the mist encroaching. This mist is less tangible in many ways. I've heard people say, "I don't care about climate change because I won't be around when it happens." You know, I think, and those sort of attitudes, I just find so disturbing and yeah all of that sort of thing fed into the idea of the mist so what's led to all of this do you think this attitude oh look i could get i personally i would say capitalism is a huge part of it um i think also we've lost our basic human empathy um how that's happened 
is way beyond my um, jurisdiction. I don't know. But, yeah, we just seem to be very cold people these days. Well, that, that line I read before, human nature unfettered, it's perhaps part mm. of us anyway. And as you point out, uh, Pete has to be constantly vigilant which gets us to the end of the story, which we can't give away. <laughs> but if we aren't, if we don't have that vigilance, we are lost. Mm. So we've got to be very, very careful. I've been talking to Lois Murphy. The uh, horror of soon is not as you would expect. It's in an investigation and an examination of human nature. And Ewan? Lachlan Walter's book, The Rain Never Came, published by Odyssey Books.